We'll be reading this morning from the chapter in 2 Peter, the entirety of chapter 2, so that's verses 1 through 22, if you'd like to follow along with me in your Bibles. Again, that's 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority." Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing." They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own right transgression, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first." For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness 
then, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you, and as we heard this passage of your scripture read over us, there's lots of strong words in it. Now, on first blush, it seems like a very difficult passage, but your word is sure, and we need to hear all of it. So I just pray that you would bless us as we go through it, and as we work our way through it this morning, and that you would just purpose for us exactly what we're supposed to hear and help us ultimately to draw nearer to you and honor you in all we do. Help me now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're just going to keep working our way straight through uh, 2 Peter. I'm going to set my watch. That's a very long passage of Scripture. And uh, we're going to do our best to get through it all today because I couldn't find a real wholesome way to break this up. And I didn't think you wanted to spend two weeks on this very motivating chapter. So, we're just going to keep pressing on. A few brief points that we identified over the past few weeks that I think are really critical for understanding this next chapter are the importance of disciplined living, possessing qualities of increasing, in an increasing way that provides assurance, allowing God's Word to be our guide. Peter established that they were not following cleverly devised myths when they made known the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He established the eyewitness nature of his own seeing of the transfiguration and the fulfillment it was of the Old Testament writings. This example established the prophetic word certainty, surety, and its trustworthiness. And we will do well to live in the light of God's word until the day dawns and the morning star shines in our heart. Christ's return or we're being called home. So while we're waiting for the not yet, we're to live with an assurance and certainty based on the evidence of prophecy fulfilled and live in God's word, live with God's word illuminating our lives. And then in the future hope, live with hope and assurance in God's word, its future promise of the return of Christ. I want to start with an application Remember a few weeks ago when I used the example of the dollar bill? Or not the dollar bill. They don't care about dollar bills being counterfeit. They care about hundred dollar bills being counterfeit. So you study the right thing or you just study the correct bill so that you know what's false. And I want to start off with an application on that. Think about antiques also. You know how hard it is sometimes to determine what's a replica versus authentic? You got to really know the details. But let me ask a question. I want to start off. Let's ask ourselves today. If someone were to want to train others on how to detect true Christianity, true authentic faith, would I be chosen as someone to study? And if not, why not? Believe me, if we are claiming Christ, We are being studied at work, by other friends, family, and it's important to note the most 
important observer, God himself. At the end of the day, this is reality. Coram Deo, before the face of God, because God knows the heart. Let's go ahead and look at our outline. The first few verses, verse 1 through 3, the impact of false teachers. Then we have this section, the certain judgment of the ungodly and the preservation of the, of, of the godly. Then we have false teachers judged for their rebellion and sensuality. And then we come back to the adverse impact of false teachers. So the first section is then unpacked in detail in the third section. Okay, so the third section is kind of a commentary in detail on the first three. So these first three verses show the historical evidence of the false prophets and speak of the future will be false teachers from you secretly bringing in destructive heresies. W.E. Vine expository dictionary definition for heresy is an opinion, especially a self-willed opinion, which is substituted for submission to the power of truth and leads to the division and formation of sex. We know from the past there were false prophets, and we also know our Lord himself warned against false prophets. In Matthew 24, Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Second Timothy, Paul warned, it says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and extort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This first verse here says that they, or the second verse, it says, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. There are three main themes in this first section that we need to uncover. And the first one is a characteristic of a false prophet is rebelliousness, denying the master who bought them. The denying term here is strong. It's a marketplace example as if a master had brought their slave the redeemed from the marketplace, yet they refuse to become servants. That's what Peter is saying here, is that these people refuse the lordship of Christ. Even though there may be an outward appearance, there is an inward refusal of the lordship of Jesus Christ. So this jumps us immediately into a doctrinal discussion because you see even denying the master who bought them. Well, that uh, has an implication to it that many interpret that these were someone who Jesus had already paid for their sins and they denied. So can a true Christian apostatize? And so this is where the term unlimited atonement comes from. And we obviously have too large of a section to unpack this in great detail and all the doctrines, but I think it's important to talk about it briefly. So there is a commonly held belief that Christ died for all everyone's sins, whether they believe it or not. The logical outcome of that is that all can be saved if they will. Christ's death is sufficient, but only effectual when someone repents and believes. Another logical outcome is, is that hell could then be full of people for whom Christ died for their sins. And this leaves it solely on the sinner's choice. And there are people in hell whose sins are forgiven. This is a commonly held belief among many denominations and churches. And there are some considerations I think we need to ponder. 
If this is true, then man is at the center of salvation, and if man wills, he can be saved. But if he chooses to then turn away, should he not also be able to? If so, then salvation is not secure except by condition. Then there's a blended view, and that view is is that Christ's death is sufficient for all but only applicable when one believes, but salvation is secure in that once you choose Christ, you no longer will to or have to keep choosing your eternity is secure in heaven. That's kind of a blended view where man cooperates and then it has eternal security. And then total depravity implies that man cannot save himself and that those whom God chose before the foundation of the world will be saved. This God is the author of our faith and if this is the case, Christ's statement on the cross, it is finished is true in the sense that it secured the salvation for all who would believe. Since God authors salvation, he gives light, life, sight, and understanding to all who are chosen, called, justified, and granted repentance and faith by the Father, then it is finished. So in some sense, we hear the term unlimited atonement, but there's really no such thing. It's either limited by man's choice or by God's choice. Is Peter allowing a true believer to turn away in this verse? I think we need to look at it because if you look on forward, look in verse 15, it says forsaking the right way. And then in verse 20, it says after escape the clutches of the world. And in verse 21, of those who have known the way are turned back. So this comes up two or three times. So I'd like to go ahead and address what I think it is. In some ways, you could just accept it exactly as it is. However, I want to draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. If you'll turn back a couple pages with me in your Bible. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I think that is just a beautiful opening in 1 Peter. There's so much confidence that can be taken by the hope there that Christ births us anew and then keeps us secure. So I don't believe, uh, I can't believe that Peter would be going from that in in his first book to then saying that something different is going to happen in the second book. So 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9 also says, who will sustain you to the end? And in Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. There are so many examples, including from Peter himself, to the certainty and security of salvation. So I think it's impossible that we can conclude that that's what Peter is implying here. There's an alternate view called the use of phenomenological language. He describes them as believers because they had made a profession of faith and gave every appearance initially of being genuine believers. Peter is referring to those people who were part of the church and even in leadership capacities. 
Yet the denial of Jesus Christ reveals they did not truly believe. I think this is the case here. Peter is saying that they were bought by Christ by the physical appearance and indications of being part of the community and having genuine faith, but yet as time elapses and it becomes apparent, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. And I think it's important here to appeal to Jesus' teaching as documented in the Gospels. On the last day, many will say, did we not drive out demons and prophesy in your name? And Christ will say, I never knew you. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, and the parable of the sower, such as the rocky ground. So I was thinking about this. Can I get a modern day analogy? So think about going to a large sporting event. People who attend the game, right? How do the news people report to them as they stream out? They say the fans are leaving the arena. The fans. Is everyone there a fan? Not necessarily, some are attenders. True fans are people that know everything about their team. They know every, all the details, they know all the stats, they know whether it's gonna be a good year or a bad year. They're engaged, they're fully committed. And so in that case, you're saying, hey, the fans are leaving, but not everyone that's walking out is a true fan of that team. I'm not trying to draw, there's a new book out that's been out the last few years. I'm not drawing any analogy to that at all. But what I'm talking about here is it's the same thing. When people stream out, if, as we all walk out of here, Someone who would be observing it said, well, look, all of those believers are leaving church. Well, that's the question. Are all of us who are leaving here believers? True, authentic believers who have encountered the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way? That don't know all about him, but know him? The application here is to heed the command Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians to examine ourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? You remember my application at the beginning? Before the face of God. Now, three more words. Many will follow. And I know I'm gonna to have to pick up the pace. We can't do it three words at a time. But it's important. We gotta talk about many will follow. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter to it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And in chapter 24, verse 10 through 12, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow old, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Isn't that a little bit shocking, the number of times the word many is used in there? The false prophets that we're about to study are in many ways to credit for the wide road. They emphasize independence, personal freedom, self-exaltation. This is appealing to men and women who so easily want to serve ourselves. So essentially they, they widen the road. They're constantly trying to widen the road. It says in here, their sensuality. Chapter two, I'm, I'm back in second Peter, hang on. It says, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words, their condemnation from long ago. 
Sensuality here is habitual sexual immorality and unrestrained conduct. It's actually plural, so it implies and it comes in many forms. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Satan loves nothing more than when the church is confused on the inside and has a tarnished reputation on the outside. And lastly, it says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Many times the ultimate goal is simply that, greed, selfish gain. So I said there were three traits in here, rebelliousness, sensuality, and greed. Well, rebelliousness could easily be equated to power, right? Self-rule. So I think we have power, sex, and money. Any, any evidences of that in society today? Is it any different from the first century church than today? I think we can draw a straight up parallel. So let's look at the judgment of the ungodly. We have three examples of judgment here, two examples of rescue. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. Who are these angels? Jude 6 and 7 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. All the commentaries I found and read, all align on the most probable reference here is to the one we just covered a few months back in Genesis. When the angels committed intercourse with daughters of men, they form a boundary transgression. God had set these boundaries in place and they broke through God's established boundaries. And that was seen as an egregious violation. And we see that he bound them to gloomy pits or chains. That's not the final judgment, but he bound them that they no longer had the freedom to move the way they did before. So let's look at this. You can look at your outline here. If God judged the angels, and if he judged the flood generation, while at the same time sparing Noah, and if he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, while at the same time preserving Lot, then it follows that the Lord will preserve the godly in the midst of their trials, and he will punish the ungodly on the day of judgment. We see that with the angels in Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to draw your attention to something that I think is important. I find it very intriguing that both of these exact examples are used by our Lord Christ in the Gospels in a context that I think is very important for us to consider. So here we know that the point that Peter is establishing that's absolutely critical is, is while the ungodly seem so often to prosper, we are to live hopeful in the future, not yet day of our Lord. But there's a secondary warning in here. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 through 39, or in Luke 17, 26 through 27, which I will read for us, I think there's, it's important. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will, will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Sorry, I stumbled on that. The context is the coming of the end of the age in the Gospels and the emphasis on the unknown hour. But there's two points being made in there. One, the indifference with which the carrying on of worldly things was happening. 
And two, the difficulty of not wanting to look back, having a heart knitted to the world. This verse is very important, I think. And I think anytime Jesus tells us specifically to go look at something, we should heed it. Christ himself said, remember Lot's wife. I have that underlined. I have that section boxed in in two different colors and highlighted in my Bible. It came across me a few years back and I was reading and I thought it was a poignant thing that our Lord said, remember Lot's wife. So I went back and you go back and you read about that section. What is it about Lot's wife? Well, let's look about what happened to Lot's wife because of Lot. So Lot chose to separate from Abram and Abraham let him choose and he chose to settle near the city. And so he chose to settle near the city in the fertile plain. The next time we see Lot is Lot got carried away when they captured Sodom and Gomorrah, the king. And Abraham had to go rescue him. So when that happened, he was found where? In the city. Well, when the people showed up to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, where was Lot found? At the gate. Well, what does that imply? That implies that he had some sort of status, maybe a council member or something at the city. So do you see the progression of Lot? Mm-hmm. And he barely escaped, didn't he? I, find, I think we find both a hope and a warning in Lot. So here's the question. The warning I feel is we need to watch our worldliness. We need to watch our worldliness and how knitted we are to it. Be aware of our progress in worldliness or maybe our affections of the things of the world. Our hope also rests in the fact that Lot was not perfect, but God still saved him. What about my life today would be most tempting to look back for if I was called elsewhere? And lastly, 2 Peter describes Lot. He says he was tormented. So I'm going to ask a question. Am I tormented in pain by the lawlessness about me? Or is it becoming normalized? We must be careful that we never become okay with a world that is perishing, as we must maintain a confidence in the power of the gospel to save. Never lose the amazing in the grace that awakened us and saved us, for that same grace can save others. Let's start in the middle of verse 10. It says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble. I know I'm giving it to you in little chunks today, but uh, we, we are going to open it up here. Okay, so bold and, and willful, they do not tremble. I think this is the key to the entire passage. Nasby, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble. NIV, bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid. The King James Version, presumptuous are they, self-willed. Do you see self all through there? their own confidence. I think this is an insight into everything that flows out of these things of false teachers. Basically, these teachers operate within their own strength and they have no shame. Bold and willful, they blaspheme the glorious one, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. These prophets had no problem slandering celestial beings. The evil angels, but it says here that even the good angels don't slander the bad angels in front of the Lord. And we said as evidence in Jude, Michael would not pronounce judgment upon the devil. He'd left it to the Lord. And then it says, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, 
blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Suffering wrong as the wages for the wrongdoing. It says here we see that while the prophets thought highly of themselves, Peter's making it clear. They're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct. They're acting on impulse and in natural desires. But he made it very clear with strong language, very strong language, that they would ultimately be hunted and destroyed. And so, this will be the end of the prophets. And verse 13 basically says they will reap what they sow. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Here it says they've progressed in their brazenness to even no longer do these deeds of lawlessness at night. There are so many tons of references in the scriptures about deeds of darkness versus being in the light. It's all through. Isaiah 5.11 seemed fitting. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Instead of being spotless and blameless, there are blots and blemishes and so deceitful that they attended the feasts These were probably love feasts among the community that ultimately culminated in the Lord's table. But they had grown so comfortable with their sin that they could do that in their hypocrisy and not feel shame. They entice, whoops, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. I think this is self-explanatory, especially in our world that's so full of sexualized things. It's this constant, not looking at people for who they are as a person and their soul, but as objects. They entice unsteady souls, probably enticing or promising people they could indulge in the worldly pleasures without consequence or judgment. They have hearts trained in greed. The Greek word here is gymnasium, kind of working out in greed, built up in greed. Think about how true this is and how direct the comparison can be made to our society. You ever heard, what's in it for me? Accursed children. Well, this is the consequence under God's church, a curse, and it flows directly into this example of Balaam who was rebuked for his own transgression. God used a donkey to stop him from progressing, but look at what was going on. He was essentially, well, he was a prophet that was motivated by financial gain. He had had agreed for a financial reward to curse the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. It says he loved gain from wrongdoing. And he was restrained by God, used his own donkey to stop him. It says he was was madness. It says in there, uh, restrained the prophet's madness. That actual translation of that is, is besides one's own mind. Or our modern day equivalent is, is, He was beside himself. You ever seen anyone beside themselves? Well, Balaam was beside himself in order to get that reward in order to deceive Israel, and God stopped it. Now, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. The results of false prophets are like waterless springs, mists driven by the storm. Think if you were wanting a cool drink and you saw a spring and you get there and you find there's no water in it. I'm gonna give you a personal example. Most of you know I grew up on a farm and ranch environment. Sometimes during droughts, just like we experienced here recently, uh, you would want it to rain so bad. 
you'd get so tired of the dust blowing and you'd try to work your ground and the implements don't go in the ground or you know whatever it is you're out there there's just so many things that just beat you down and a storm cloud comes up and it looks like it's going to rain and it looks like it's going to rain and then before the rain even gets to the ground it evaporates and then it comes along and it blows away And I mean, sometimes we would stand around and we would laugh and we would count the distance between the raindrops because you would think it was about to rain, it would come through and you could see it in the dust. Empty, empty feeling. That's how the prophets leave you, these false prophets. People search for satisfaction and they're parched and in need. Lastly, it says they speak loud boasts of folly. They're flamboyant, high-minded sounding words. They deceive their followers with their appearing religious. They entice by sensual passions. Here they provide a form of okay for pursuing carnality and worldliness. This even happens in our time as we see such an abandonment of the pursuit of holiness. I think some of this is directly related to our modern day emphasis on having our best life now and having it all now as opposed to seeing that the greatness is someday with the king. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, the sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. So does this refer to the false teachers or the converts? There's arguments for both sides. And I am actually gonna stand with Tom Schreiner. I don't think you have to pick a side. I think it applies to both. I think those who commit apostasy are very likely to return to the very unlikely to return to the truth. And those who are wavering must see that heaven and hell are at stake. So, again, we come back to this full circle situation. Can someone fall away? Well, there's a big difference between knowing about Jesus Christ and knowing Jesus Christ. You can know a whole lot about someone and not know them. It's clear in our day we see many reminders that walking an aisle, raising a hand, making a profession does not ensure or guarantee a future destiny in heaven. Only those who continue and persevere in a life of godliness to the end. Now for some final application. I read this and I think, surely teachers so heinous would not be tolerated I think, you know, when you, when you read that passage, you're like, surely. And so I, I pondered this for the last several weeks, and I've come to this realization. I think Peter's given us a passage here that's kind of like total depravity. Total depravity implies that we are always sinful, but it does not mean that we are always as sinful as we could possibly be. And I think when you look at these this list of false prophets, I think Peter's outlining these are all ways that false prophets manifest themselves, but not all false prophets manifest all these ways all the time. So that makes it even more dangerous, right? 
because they might be manifesting some of these and some of the time, and it might be even harder to detect. So I think it's a great warning for us. So, but think of the first century church, paganism, Jewish converts, conversions from Gentiles, various people, groups, and regions, and the only thing they would have had is the letters from Paul or Peter. They wouldn't have thousand years of writings from the church and denominational structures. Yet even with all of that, do we still have false prophets today? Even with all of the barriers and all of the learning that's now far removed from where they were, we were here, is this warning applicable for today? I absolutely think so. I'll just throw out a few examples. We won't exhaust this because I know we're at the time, but how about the prosperity gospel? I think it's one of the most heinous and horrible deceits going on today. This idea of some sort of transactional, relational thing that if you do this, then you get this. You get some sort of gain. Most of those gains are all tied to worldliness here. So deceptive. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere. As a matter of fact, most of us, I think if we go look at, you know, come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and we're guaranteed persecution. If we're really living for him. We see many examples of spiritual leaders falling into sensuality. A recent high-profile example of an apologist that that happened to. It didn't come out while the person was alive, but it came out. It's done massive damage. Massive damage. Easy believism. How about progressive Christianity? It's a big thing going on right now. I borrowed a book, or Ed gave it to me. I'd ask Ed for some advice, and he gave me this book, and and I was reading this chapter on progressive Christianity, and it's this, this, this thing that's going on about deconstructing faith, not believing in the Bible's authority, making the Bible say what you want it to say. It starts off first a lot of times by one, we just don't believe in the inspiredness of it. Or you say, well, I don't believe in the Old Testament. We're just going to be New Testament. Or then you can go it all the way down. Well, I'm just going to believe in the Gospels because Jesus is love and I don't agree with Paul and all this. And then it's going as far as tearing out pages of the Gospels and throwing them in the fire and just, there's no end. So I want to close with a couple points. What did Peter, what did Peter, what did he establish right before this Right before this chapter, let's go back. Verse 21 in chapter 1. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter was establishing there the authority of God's word, not only in his own life where he witnessed the transfiguration and he was talking about the certainty of the prophecies that had been fulfilled and the confidence that he came with that. And then his own observing of Jesus Christ. And he was proclaiming the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The best protection against false prophets is stay close to God's word. So, let's, I've got I've to a, a, just a, put this, write this down, whatever you want to do. Um, maybe this week, put it on your, on your computer screen next to it. I'm going to give us a little challenge. I think we would do well to pray earnestly, 
study vigorously and pursue godliness. Pray earnestly, study vigorously, and pursue godliness. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we have each other as believers. We pray that you'd just guide us and direct us here as a body that we would be evidence. If people were wanting to study true believers, I pray that they would come here first. If they were wanting to persecute true Christians, I would hope that we would be first on the list because everyone knows that Christ's Redeemer is full of believers that are unashamed. Lord, I just pray that you would be honored by all of us, and I just pray that if there's anyone in here that doesn't yet know you, that today would be that day. In Jesus' name, amen.